Well, good morning. I'm, I'm pretty new around here, so if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Karen. My husband, Alan, and I live a few streets over, and we've been attending Emmanuel for about six months. During the week, I work at an engineering firm in Bellevue. I'm not an engineer, but I do project management and operations for them. A few years ago, a new gal started in our business group, and we worked on the same project, so even though I wasn't her supervisor, I sort of took it upon myself to unofficially mentor her. Well, we don't work on the same projects anymore, but I got this lovely email from her two weeks ago, and I'm gonna read part of it to you. It's got a little bit of accounting jargon in it, but I think you'll get the gist. Hi, Karen. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you had pointed me out that providing JBC reports as a means of communicating budget status was not the most accurate way to see how much budget is remaining. I've kept this in my mind for over two years now, and I've used different data, which felt like a truer picture of the status, but had never really clicked why the JBC report could be so far off until all-inclusive billing rate projects. I just wanted to say thanks for this piece of knowledge you shared with me that has impacted how I do things. Hope you're doing good, Stephanie. Oh, it really made my day and my week to get that email, and it was so thoughtful that she took the time to send it to me. And it's also got me thinking about those times in our lives where someone that we trust teaches us something, and we trust them, but we really don't get it. But then time goes by, and we have these aha moments where we recognize it and we see it. In John's Gospel, he uses themes of illumination and instruction and revelation a lot. And in today's passage, we get to see this great glimpse of the disciples being both perplexed at something and something that Jesus is doing and saying, and then we also get to see them have that aha moment. So our scripture is from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, 
and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. Have any of you all read the book Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard? Anyone? Okay, I thought there might be a few in this crowd that had, had read it. It's in the same vein as Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story where the main character of the book goes on a journey up a mountaintop that's very difficult, and it's an allegory for a Christian's spiritual journey towards Christian maturity. I read the book twice. The first time I read it, I really enjoyed it. There was a chapter on forgiveness that was especially helpful for me about the way that I think about that. But there was one part of the book that I was very perplexed by, and it was a really important part. When the main character sets out on this journey up this mountain, the shepherd, AKA Jesus, gives her two companions. And the two companions are sorrow and suffering. <laughs> so I thought if you were going on a hard journey up a mountaintop that better companions might be encouragement or hope or perseverance. But no, uh, Jesus gave her sorrow and suffering. So fast forward a few years in my life. I was in a dating relationship that I hoped would lead to marriage, but my boyfriend just didn't treat me well. There wasn't any abuse or anything like that. He was just a bad boyfriend. He didn't, he didn't show affection. He didn't make me feel like I was important to him at all. As you can imagine, it was, it was really hard and it was painful. And about two years in, which I, I know sounds horribly long, about two years in, I knew in my gut that this wasn't going to lead anywhere. And I desperately wanted God's guidance on what to do. So I prayed a lot. I prayed so much. I sought counsel from my pastor and from one of my favorite professors. I talked with my accountability sisters. Our church actually had Stephen's ministers, if you've heard of that, and I asked for help from one of them to just talk through it. And it did become clear, and I did break up with him, even though it was very sad and it, and it was hard. So sometimes later, I read Heinz Feet on High Places again, and this time I understood why sorrow and suffering often accompany the hard work towards Christian maturity. Because in that last six months of that unhealthy relationship when I was praying, I really worked through a lot of my own baggage around relationships. And being so dependent on Jesus for help, it took our relationship to the next level. Now, please don't mishear me. Not all sorrow and suffering is sent to make us mature Christians, and we certainly don't have to seek it out. Uh, I have a beloved uncle who just passed away, and I don't think God took him to teach anyone a lesson. I think his heart that he'd been having a lot of problems with just, just gave out. But in the passage that we are looking at today, there actually was a specific purpose for the suffering that is alluded to. Jesus is going to suffer and the disciples are gonna be really sad about it. So 
In the passage, Jesus does two very perplexing things. First, he does what we know as cleansing the temple. He walks into the temple, which would ideally be a place of solemnity and a place of holy adoration, a place where you would hear the murmuring of prayers of contrition and petition. But instead, he hears the bellowing of of cattle and the bleeding of sheep, and it's kind of turned into a circus. So this isn't the best analogy, but what I kept imagining as I was preparing for this was the Puyallup Fair. Like, you've got the stinky livestock everywhere, and you've got vendors everywhere trying to sell you stuff, and you've got overpriced food, and you've got those, those ticket booths where you exchange your currency for the ticket currency that you use to pay for the rides. So Jesus walks in, and he does this very unexpected and kind of shocking thing. He drives them out, and he calls the temple his father's house. And it's clear in his actions and his words that he believes that he has the authority to do this. So in John's gospel, we're only in chapter two. This is happening very early in his ministry. The only miracle that he's done so far is turning water into wine at a wedding. So he's really just a guy going with his family to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover like a lot of other Jews would have done at that time. So I would imagine that a lot of people that were there and saw this were thinking, who is this guy? Or who does this guy think he is? Later, the passage tells us that Jesus' disciples recognize his action as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And it helps confirm for them who he is. He's God's son and he's God's Messiah. So the second thing that Jesus does that is confusing in this passage is that he says he's gonna tear down and rebuild the temple in three days. So in about 20 BC, Herod the Great had started this temple rebuilding program to appease his Jewish subjects because they didn't like him very much. And as you can imagine, it takes a long time to rebuild a temple and and we see that in the scripture. So on the surface, Jesus' claim is just nonsensical, right? But after Jesus is crucified, buried, and then three days later rises, his disciples remember this interaction and they put it together that Jesus was speaking cryptically about his own death and resurrection. And more than that, it helps them to fully understand what Jesus was revealing about himself. So the temple was a place where God's presence dwelt among the people. And John in his gospel calls Jesus the word made flesh. And what he's trying to get across is now Jesus is the place where the glory of God has chosen to make its dwelling. The temple was also a place of sacrificial purification. So when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and died for the sin of the world, it kind of made those services that happened in the temple obsolete. So I mentioned that the passage right before this in John is when Jesus turns water into wine. 
It says that those stone jars that Jesus used were normally used for Jewish rites of purification. So Jesus fills those jars with something new, and if you remember, it was something better. It was the best wine. And in this passage today, Jesus says he's going to replace the temple, something that's also used for Jewish rites of purification, with something better himself. Do you see what John the author did there? I I love this kind of stuff. It's why I love doing Bible studies. So it's quite a claim that Jesus is making. He's claiming that the entire worship of God's people will now be around his person and his mission rather than at the temple. In the last verse of the book of John, John really states his reason for why he wrote this gospel. He says, but these, these meaning the acts and sayings of Jesus that he accounted, but these have been written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life. And when he says life, he doesn't just mean in heaven. He means full, kingdom-centered life now in our life on earth and when he comes again. So an important part of our journey as a Christian is getting to know Jesus and getting to know what life in his kingdom looks like. So some things are easy to understand for us. Like, Jesus wants us to feed the poor. That's pretty clear. But sometimes there are things about him and his kingdom that take us longer to really get. It might take the Holy Spirit to really help us understand. But when we finally do, when the light bulb goes off, it strengthens our ability to have like real belief, real faith. And that often changes the way that we do things. It could change the way that we pray. It could change the way that we relate to someone in our life. It could make us feel closer to God or more loved by God. A few examples of truths that it might take some time to really believe that I'll just share are Do you really believe that God is trustworthy or does it sometimes seem like he's unreliable? Do we really believe that God pursues us and our loved ones or does it sometimes seem like he's abandoned us? Do I have faith that God provides for all my needs or do I actually believe that he withholds things from me? That's been a big one for me to really have faith in. I often repeat to myself the first line of Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I often have to tell myself that. So the whole time I was in that unhealthy dating relationship, I had a great friend, Shelly, that kept holding out this vision that God had something much better for me. So about eight years ago, I felt ready to date again, and I read this great book about dating that was written by a Christian psychologist, and I followed it to a T, because clearly my way hadn't been working. And I met Alan. 
And we'd been seeing each other for a few months, and I was driving home from one of our dates, and I had a very important aha moment. I vividly remember that I thought this to myself. I thought, oh, this is how it's supposed to feel like. This is what it's supposed to look like. And in that moment, it was the first time that I let myself believe that maybe God would give me a husband. And not just any husband, but a husband who pursues me and loves me and enjoys being with me and who's a great guy and a really good fit for me. So a year later, we were wed and uh, we've been married for seven years. But I just want to point out that that aha moment, it took me 39 years to get, you know, to really recognize what God's will for that part of my life was. I'm super grateful that God was patient with me and that he didn't give up on me. I'm going to close with the verse that Warren read at the beginning of the service. This is also from the book of John. And it's when Jesus is reassuring his disciples, who are also, like us, about to experience sorrow in losing their leader and their teacher. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and he will declare to you that things are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Amen. Amen.